This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the Blackberry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the Blackberry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. When author and yogi David Ramanelli was at Blackberry Farm for his wellness and wisdom event, he sat down with Master Gardener John Quickendall in our garden shed to talk a little bit about the wisdom that comes with age. Imagine yourself in the garden and enjoy hearing a bit of wisdom from John. All right, so John, you gave us some a little bit of great advice before that. I, I think it's be amazing to recap it. Um, tell me some of the greatest wisdom that you've learned from the land that you think can help us live a good life. The greatest examples come to mind for me are the old people that I came up with. When I was young, most of the people I learned from were born in the 1880s. So that was, you know, going back pretty far in time. And on up to around 1900, a little beyond that. That was the real old ones that I knew. But there was a sense of seasons when you started, when you planted, when you were harvesting, putting up for winter, all of these different seasons that families went through. And they were all preservers by necessity. They kept their seed. They didn't have the money to go buy new seed. So seeds were handed down. When early pioneers came in, they brought seeds with them and they would trade with neighbors. Some things came from the Cherokee Indians. So a lot of, a lot of things were collected by the different families. One interesting point, I go back to my friend Bill Best up in Berea, Kentucky, and he has a great big topographical map in his barn, his seed barn where he preserves seed. And in the middle of the Cumberland Gap, he has a pin stuck in there and he has a string that goes out, represents a hundred mile radius. And when you draw that circle around the Appalachian region, that takes in Eastern Kentucky, East Tennessee, Western North Carolina, Southwest Virginia, and West Virginia. And the thing that these areas have in common is they were all very marginal lands. Now you go west in Tennessee, you get into flatlands where great big cotton plantations and farms were, still are. But you didn't find a whole lot of seed saving in the conventional sense that we think of it today. But in these mountainous regions, in these areas, a tremendous amount of diversity was preserved. There's more diversity in the Appalachian region than there is the rest of the country combined. It's amazing all the, and especially things like beans and tomatoes, just for two examples. But these are all heirlooms that were handed down all through the years by families. That's interesting because most people wouldn't think of Appalachia as for diversity, but you're saying that it's got tremendous diversity. It's got more than any other place. Really? That's for natural fauna and forests, just incredible amount of diversity. Yeah. These are among the oldest mountains in the world. Okay. So, so you learned about... Uh, being in touch with the seasons and is there can you give a little more about for people that on how to live according to the seasons well a lot of my favorite things are some of the old timers some of the sayings that they had there was a lady that lived down the street here west miller's cove road 
And she always said, plant your pumpkins when the dogwoods are in full bloom and you'll make some really big ones. Well, I found that to be true. There was another person that said you had to plant your melons on the 1st of May before sunrise. And I can remember several times getting up before sunup, setting the alarm clock, running out and sticking those melon seeds in the potting soil hmm. to get those started. But there were so many different things. And one of my favorites was the old timers used to say planting corn. When the red oak leaves, not the red oak, but the white oak leaves, yeah. when they were size of a mouse's ear, it was time to plant corn. Yeah. So there's so much. So this is advice you're probably not going to get on the Internet, right? Not likely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what do, what do you say to people like, like me who spend way too much time looking at a screen? My suggestion is to get a garden some kind of way, even if it's just a container box or pots on the patio or terrace. A lot of guests have come here, and I'll suggest they start gardens, and they say, well, I don't have any room for a garden. Yeah. I say, well, do you have a deck or a patio? And they say, well, we do have that. Well, there's, you can get containers, fill that with good uh, soil. You can do uh, pots themselves. You, you can uh, trellis cucumbers up the side of the house. Many, many things you can grow, and especially herbs. Something that's really cost-effective are herbs. Yeah. You know, in the store, you go in and get one of these little jars, six, seven dollars, and, and it's far from fresh. But herbs, I, I don't know of a meal that doesn't have herbs except maybe ice cream. And what can, you, what can somebody learn from having a garden? You learn the cycles of life and you learn nature. You become really, really, I'd say it's, a, you would become one with it. And that's the way it is out here in these gardens. When I talk about going to church, if you're down on your knees and crawling through the pepper patch pulling up weeds, that's about as religious as you can get. <laughs> I love it. So do you, have, do you have children? I do, I've got two. Got a son, 40, daughter, 39. And how do you grow good children? Put them out in the garden and let them grow. <laughs> That's great. My daughter loves tomatoes and she loved growing the thing. My son, was, he was a welder. He, did, he didn't go to it that much, but he loves what comes out of it. Yeah. So what's been the, what's been the hardest part of life for you? Like what's the most challenging part of life? Each season is a challenging part of life, whether it's a drought, or too much rain, certain insects or pests or disease. So we're always working with those things. One of the great things about this organic farming is we're working with nature. Modern agriculture, if you go into a modern farmer's field, it's powdery soil, it's, it's far from alive. Everything in it's been killed. Yeah. The weeds have been killed microorganisms have been killed, everything replaced by chemical fertilizers, pesticides, growth hormones, you, you name it, everything is, it, it's been, there's nothing natural about it. You go out into this garden here, it's full of earthworms. It's, a, it's literally living, it's a living organism. So that's, that's one of the things that makes our things do so well. I can best describe blackberries farming practices is sustainable agriculture literally from the ground up. And when I say the ground up, we're talking about the compost fertilizer that goes into it. We have a long trench with compost in it that's well rotted, ready to go on the gardens, which we use when th things are planted. We have another pile that's working in progress, 
and then a third pile that's green, in other words, being added to daily. So we always have that process going on. The old people used to say, if we're going to grow good crops, we've got to grow good soil. We have to, uh, we have to nurture the land. Yeah. So it'll nurture the food you eat, what goes into it. And the second part of the equation is the seeds. We're sustainable as far as seeds go. I said we were sustainable agriculture from the ground up. First of all, is the fertilizer, the compost. Second component is the seeds. All of the seeds we have are open pollinated. In other words, we never have to go back to a seed company for any seeds. Now we do use, go to uh, alternative companies. The Seed Savers Exchange is the granddaddy of them all. We will get new things from them. I call them new old things. They're old varieties to add to the collection, but we never use hybrids. Hybrids aren't sustainable. You've got to go back to the company year after year. Chemical fertilizer is not sustainable. Again, you've got to return to the purveyor and, and, and buy that. Pesticides, that's not sustainable. So what we do is we stay in balance as much as we can with things. We have cover crops, we have crop rotation. For instance, if we plant Irish potatoes in the top field this year, after the potatoes are harvested, we're gonna plant uh, fall wheat. That wheat comes up and starts to grow and it totally disrupts the Colorado potato beetle cycle. Hmm. It would be like dropping me by parachute into New York City. I wouldn't know what in the world to do with myself. <laughs> so that uh, potato beetle, he's pretty much the same way. He gets lost. Meanwhile, next year we've moved this potato field down to the far end of the farm. And then cover crops go on for the winter in all these fields. Yeah, That's for soil conservation, for nutrients. For instance, one thing, we do some uh, no-till farming. Most of what we do is no-till, except for building beds up, like the tomato beds and strawberry beds you saw. That we have a tractor that mounds the dirt up about two feet high, about four feet wide, and then that's leveled off, and then the plants are put on top. So a lot of, one of the practices I like that we do for no-till is we'll raise winter wheat. About this time of year, we'll take heavy rollers, big drums, and roll over that. Well, that, that puts it down flat on the ground. This has gone over, and then your, your mat's gonna be about this thick. So that discourages weed germination, helps keep moisture in the soil, and we go down through that and plant whatever we're, we're going to plant. So we're not disrupting the, the life of the soil. When you, every time you turn that soil and put it on top, you've, you've killed most of your, yeah. of your bacteria and good, uh, your good organisms in the soil. So there's always a natural way to deal with the challenges. There's always something you could do. We've learned a lot from, if you look at a Cherokee Indian garden from 100, 200 years ago, it wouldn't be recognizable in terms of our modern gardens. You'd find pigweed in there, planting all sorts of things which were used for foods and medicinal uses. So these, these things were all growing intermixed and one would complement the other. Certain plants would ward off other types of insects, or they would be beneficial to a plant growing beside it. So, so, what, so I guess this carries over then to people too, that there's always a natural way to solve your health issues. Do you believe that? One of the biggest things that I've noticed over the years is we got away from taking care of ourselves. In other words, it was left to left to the doctor, left to 
the grocery store, left to whatever. Yeah. In the old days, you took care of yourself. You took care of your own health. You know that we're all responsible for our own, our, ourselves. Whatever you've got in life, you're responsible for that. Yeah. And our way of life is the same thing. And so these, down through the years, they were always seeking out ways to do things, whether it was medicinally, the way they farmed, what they grew, what they eat, or what they ate. Now these, a lot of the uh, diets back then were very simple. Some people might consider them somewhat boring, but they were extremely healthy diets. They ate meat, but not in the sense we do today. In the fall, they killed hogs and, and the meat was put in the smokehouse, cured meat, and that would for flavoring usually. If you were cooking beans, you'd have a piece of smokehouse meat to go in it to flavor it. But they weren't eating T-bone steaks and all <laughs> kinds of meat at every meal. Yeah. But not anywhere like what you think. Yeah. They, they supplemented with game, rabbit, squirrel, deer, other things. But the, they were vegetarians to a great extent. Peas, butter beans, sweet potatoes, all sorts of uh, plants like that, plus the wild plants. One of my favorites, in the, which was a, called a spring tonic, was the old time you've heard of uh, poke, poke weed or poke salad. Remember that old song, Poke Salad Annie? Yes. <laughs> that was, this was from the poke weed. Now the okay. poke weed, when it would come up about less than a foot high, you would cut those uh, off. Now they are, they're poisonous if they're, but they get larger. Yeah. When you get those berries on it, the ripe berries are sort of a purplish tint. That was used for uh, arthritis. It, it could be rubbed on a sore joint and would help. Hmm. And uh, the big greens though would be cut off and they would be cooked in three waters poured off. They figured that poured, got the poison element out. But it was a very, considered a very cleansing meal. So at least once a year, you ought to ha have uh, fried, uh, fried eggs and bacon grease with those cooked down uh, poke weed in it. So if, I, if someone has like a, a flu, do you have like a natural advice, something that they do? Yeah, the inner bark of the red oak. The uh, willow tree, the inner bark of that is like aspirin. Really? It has the same properties as aspirin. So where, where would one get that? Your willows are found along creeks, damp areas. Now, if you had poison ivy, or any of you familiar with jewelweed, jewelweed grows about this tall. Some people call it skull cap. Yeah. It has a look like a little witch's skull cap. It's yellow and orange. The juice of that's very, very juicy okay. stem. And if you've got poison ivy, you break that and rub it on there, and that will clear that up. What about a cough, like a bad cough? Cough, wild cherry, made syrup out of that. Okay. <laughs> Pretty awesome. Lots of different things. But they, you know, they didn't have the doctors to go to. They yeah. couldn't, couldn't afford that. Yeah. And of course, I've heard some things that, like I was talking about earlier, that were kind of ridiculous. Like, in other words, if you stuck a nail through your foot, dad pulled that out and drove the nail in the tree. And, Asked him why did he do that. He said, "That's to put, take the poison out of you and put it in the tree." Right. <laughs> Not too many people in medical science would agree with that. Yeah. However, it makes a good story. It's the same thing when women were giving childbirth. This country doctor I knew, he said he went to deliver a baby, and the lady was stretched out on the bed, and underneath the bed he noticed a double-bitted axe, and he asked uh, 
husband said, what in the world is this axe doing under the bed? He, he said, that's to cut the pain. <laughs> Again, probably not something doctor today would agree with. Yeah. But look at the story it makes. Yeah. <laughs> so last year you told me a funny story about the truffle dogs. Do you remember that? The guy that works on the farm called, said something funny about Oh, gosh, yeah, that was a fellow named Anthony. He was putting electric lines over to the kennels. And these dogs, something had them stirred up. They were, uh, they were just going crazy. He came over here to me and he said, them damn mushroom poodle is about to drive me crazy. <laughs> so I've been calling them mushroom poodles ever since. <laughs> yep, that was, that's the story you're thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys have any questions? Who, who decides when you, you try new things here? We all do. Anything that goes in there, they will use. If we're, if we're doing, a, say, a new bean or two or three new ones, they will use anything and everything we have. Now, sometimes the chefs will ask for maybe a di different tomato or a melon or corn, something like that. We'll accommodate them anything they want. Really, what this garden is like is a four-and-a-half-acre kitchen garden. In other words, you're not going to find a whole acre of corn and things that takes up all that space. The most commonly asked question is, do you produce all the food that they use in the kitchen? And the answer is always the same. They'll use 100% of what we produce. We could never produce 100% of what they need. And the three best examples I could give you on that would be something that restaurants, any restaurant's going to use in bulk. Carrots, potatoes, and onions. That's about as basic as you can get. These stock pots go year-round. They're always filled up and cooking. You can buy those great big carrots, 100-pound bags. You can buy those all day off the market. And big onions the same way. There'd be no reason for us to try to do that. We couldn't produce all they would need anyway. So, but what we do is we grow all of those things. We grow potatoes, we grow onions, and we grow the carrots. The carrots we grow are the white ones, the purple, yellow, and the red. And those particular ones, the chefs like small. They might be about a little bit bigger than a pencil. And you might get that on your plate tonight as part of your entree. Many things like that. And the potatoes, we have uh, the red, the purple, the yellow, pink, all sorts of different uh, types of potatoes. And again, they like these very small, size of a big marble sometimes. These great big ones, again, we can buy those all day on the market. Yeah. Guys, have any other questions? So you said that that you don't produce 100% of what they need, but they use 100% of what you produce. The best way I can put it, I think about myself personally. Now I studied art and grew up around farming. I picked the two poorest things there are in life. You can't make a dime at either one of them. <laughs> However, I wouldn't trade either one. Luckily for me, I wound up at Blackberry, so I've been able to. I can finish out my days here. Ultimate goal, drop dead behind a plow someday. <laughs> but in the meantime, I've always, I've always told guests that I can't afford to die. It would ruin my reputation. <laughs> so I hope to stick around a few more years. Yeah, how old do you want to live to be if you could choose? Oh, shoot, I'd like to get over 100. Really? Like my buddy Arlie down there, he's 99. He'll be 100 pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. What do you think is the secret to longevity a simple life good work 
a good healthy diet of real food and the elimination of stress. Stress activates so many diseases. Can't say stress gives you a disease, but it activates the potential for it. Yeah. And people live under so much stress all the time going. These people I've told you about on the farms like that, they had to they were hard lives, but they were simple lives and very fulfilling lives. The families were much more together. People mm -hmm. weren't scattered. Mm -hmm. And their their way of life really it nurtured a good, healthy life. Thank you. Amazing. How do you eliminate your stress? Because I think sometimes one could say hard work creates stress. Well, it's uh, not this kind of work. This kind of work is, uh, you might as well be taking a Valium or something. <laughs> you get out of the <laughs> This isn't uh, the kind of work that, uh, the kind of work that causes stress is some deadline you've got to meet or somebody chewing at you over the some project in the office or stuck in traffic for four hours or Stuff like that. Have you been to L.A.? Yeah, where you're sitting there. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to see him in L.A. I'm talking lock. about that kind of stress. The yeah. hard work. That was a, that was a healthy. Yeah. That's not stress. That's 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 good. It's a good way of life. Anybody else got a gym? To How do you approach the unknowns like weather and things that you can't control that may affect? sit back and wait and see what happens. We don't have any control over that, so we, we have to experience teaches you an awful lot in times of drought or in times of too much water. We just finished a very, very wet period. This lower field that you see right outside the door. That. Hey. Where were we? We are talking about the upper field here. We had so much rain that the gravel road that you see here and the one coming up from the top field was a river for three weeks. Hmm. And for the longest time, the fields are flooded too. I thought, this is, must be runoff from up in the mountains. But as I observed it more closely, I could see that it was like welling up out of the ground like a spring. Hmm. In other words, it's like taking a sponge and you fill it full of water, there's no room for any more. That's it. Hmm. And that's the way that was, it was coming. So I had to dig little trenches all over the place to get that water to run off. So it was a touch and go thing. You have to be creative, whatever situation you're in. If it's drought, I've got to figure out ways to bank up so that there's a trench down a row of if it's beans or tomatoes so I can flood that yeah. to, to water it. We have to be able to meet any challenges. Do you have hope for the state of the world? Are you hopeful? Yes, I'll tell you one thing that we're in right now, and this I can't speak for the entire world, but we are literally in a renaissance now. That you know, food fads have come and gone so many times. Might be something starts in California or some other area, and it goes two or three years, then the, that fad plays out. This is something that's been steadily growing for a long while now. I remember 20, 25 years ago, I would mention Monsanto. We don't use the M word around here. So I would talk to people about that. Nobody knew what I was talking about. Today, you can't mention Monsanto to one person. Doesn't know what it is, even if they have no connection with farming or, or farm life or gardening or anything. So the, the awareness is so much higher now. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to get very sophisticated about talking about it. All we have to talk about is a tomato. That pretty well covers the full range. Mm. 
you eat uh, a plastic styrofoam tomato or you eat a good one in season. Like I said before, tomatoes are like Santa Claus. They come once a year. Take it and be thankful. Now, I still believe in Santa Claus. I can't wait for him to get here in, in uh, July. Yeah. <laughs> so real food is, is so very important, and that's coming back. Beans is another example. I'm not going to go into everything. We don't have the time, but beans, they had so many different types in this region in the old days. Everything that you grew had to be a 365-day-a-year crop in some form. In other words, in the spring, they would plant a brown bunch-type beans. It was a flat bean about this long, and it would germinate and fare well in cool weather, cooler soil. When that was gone, they used the half-runner types, and they, they'd call those a st stick bean because they used tobacco sticks. You'd have a row here and one over here, and those tobacco sticks would be stuck in the ground, pulled together, and those half-runner beans would climb over those, and you'd have the support for it. And sometimes they would intersperse tobacco stalks in there because that was a strong repellent for insects, kept mm. insects away from it as well. Then you had uh, pole beans. You've seen the trellises for pole beans. They would have those. Later on, when you planted the corn, they followed the idea of the three sisters method of farming. Three sisters method of farming was corn, beans, and pumpkins, winter squash. You planted the corn first when it was around waist high. Beans were planted at the base of it. Now, corn takes a lot of nitrogen out of the soil. Beans, being nitrogen fixers, and especially field peas, helped put it back. So it was a good companion planting, good intercropping system. Your pumpkins and squash were interspersed throughout the field. Those long vines and big leaves would shade the ground out, keep the weeds down, and help keep moisture in. So it was a perfect environment. Yeah. You never see that today out in, in the farming world. You still see it up in areas like this. To some extent, people that have farms with maybe hillside gardens or smaller plots, they will, they will still So it's all about timing. Yes. Timing and being in rhythm. Now, if you look up over your head here, just up, up this in this rafter and also right here, what you see are leather breeches beans. Back before the days of canning, the cornfield beans would be picked by the ladies. They would go out and pick those. They had a big quilt or something stretched out under a white oak tree. They'd sit there, take the strings out of the beans, snap them, take needle and thread and sew up through them. You'd have a strand about three or four feet long. Those would be hung on the rafters of the front porch to dry out. Hmm. Now, during the wintertime, they'd be hung by the wood-burning stove or the, the, the chimney, fireplace, where your cooking was done. And these beans... You'd take a strand down when you wanted a mess of those, as they called it. That says a mess of beans or whatever. That was that was called a mess something you were going to have for supper. So they would take those down, reconstitute them, soak them overnight. And they got the name leather breeches because they resemble the pioneer men's leather buckskin breeches that they wore. Hmm. And these would soften up, and then they would cook those several hours over a slow fire. You had the crane and the cast iron kettle hanging on the crane and those would cook along. Now to go with that for bread they had what was known as ash cakes. They would rake those ashes back in the fireplace, pour that batter, cornmeal batter on the hot stone, sear that, flip it over, and then you'd put ash and coals back on top of that and that would bake it. 
hence the name Ash Cakes. Hmm. Now they would, uh, if you were lucky, you might get a little uh, onion to go with it. And the onions they grew then were called potato onions. They call them potato onions because they had the same growth habit as a potato. You put one onion out and it would divide off and make eight, 10, 12 onions. Hmm. Some of them would be big, some medium size, and some small. Another name for them was the nesting onion because they would grow in, in, a, in a group or clump. Look yeah. like a little nest. You know a lot. <laughs> I don't know nearly enough yet. <laughs> that's, a, that's the attitude. That's great. Somebody told me one time, I said, boy, you really know a lot about this stuff. I said, no, I had a bunch of good old timers and they just let me tag along. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Well, you're sure welcome. It's been a joy hanging out yeah, with everybody. Absolutely. I think the most encouraging thing to me is the people you meet. And every time if I get groups in here, many, many times people say, I want to go home and start a garden now. Yeah. And you'd hope that that really catches. And in many yeah. cases it has. I'll get uh, people will send photographs and say, look at my garden I did. That was from visiting here at Blackberry and seeing these gardens. But it is part of the renaissance, for a renaissance of food. And I was liking, I was going to tell you earlier, I look at myself like Rembrandt's apprentice. I'm down here grinding the colors and stretching the canvas. That means picking all the produce and taking it over. The master chefs uh, come six o'clock, you go back and look at one of those plates, and it does. It looks like a work of art, the way things are arranged. and sauces, everything. It's its a painting to me. Hmm. And I, was, I don't know if all of you heard it. I was talking earlier about uh, that charger I designed. We had a fellow, was, I think it was last year, he was up in his 80s. And he said, that was a beautiful plate you designed, but before I could eat on it, somebody jerked it up and took it away. Gosh, it's breakfast, been, through the gardens, it's, through it's, sitting down together. It's, it's been an absolute joy. I've loved it. It's such a treat for us as well. Yeah. There's nothing in this world better than uh, preaching the seed gospel, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Blackberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. Dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on blackberryfarm.com and blackberrymountain.com. Make a great day!